2: California, and Texas, and New York, we're going to South Dakota, and Oregon, and Washington, and Michigan, and then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! It's a plane. It's a big old bird. It's Lady Gaga's dress. It's election shock therapy. <laughs> Happy <laughs> inauguration, guys. Yeah. yeah. All right. How much? How much of a stipend would I have to pay you to wear a brooch the size of Lady Gaga's Dove of Peace? that she wore to sing the national anthem at the inauguration. <laughs> it was roughly the size of her chest. It went from clavicle bone to clavicle bone. So wow. how much, what stipend would you accept in order to wear a gold dove with an olive branch in its mouth across and across your chest on the first day of class? So we have to wear it like the whole first day of class. You got to rock it the whole day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can we explain we're being financially
2: enumerated? Nope. nope. Oh. You, you just got to own it.
0: Got to own it. Like million
2: dollar mm-hmm. butt ones, isn't it? Uh, you do it for less than a million, though, right? Uh, yeah, I would. Yeah. No. yeah, I don't think I can afford not to. I'm not getting it. So. Uh, The inauguration certainly had some memorable moments, not limited to the sartorial choices of one Lady Gaga. Uh, We want to review just what you guys took away from the inauguration, but we want to get past the actual ceremonial event, talk about what some of the first uh, um, days uh, will look like for the Biden administration, what some of the early legislative priorities will be, and um, because uh, there's still a lot of those things influenced by the prior occupant of the White House, We're also going to talk about the looming impeachment process uh, for Donald Trump and where that leaves the Republican Party, uh, which is now um, has lost both control of the House and the Senate, as well as the presidency, and what the future looks like there. So, guys, first things first, just real quick uh, takeaway moments, highlights, other updates that you want that you want to find memorable um, from the inauguration time period itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought this was a very, um, it felt very normal, other than, the of course, the parts where there was distance and mask, right? And, and yep. not a lot of people. But in terms of the kinds of things you saw on stage, it felt normal. Um, I thought the speech by Joe Biden was really quite well done. Um, he, you know, for Joe Biden at this stage in his career, which he is, I mean, you know, he's not an amazing speaker, right? But he did a really nice job of trying to bring a message of unity and also at the same time promoting like hey there are real ideas of truth and we need to be serious about them um, and so we are we're not just calling everything good right but but at the same time I really do want to be the president of all Americans and I thought that that message came through loud and clear mm-hmm. um and I thought he delivered it um quite effectively so um that was probably my biggest biggest takeaway is that you know the presidential speech felt very normal um uh, which after 4 years of Donald Trump did feel Different, right? Um, but kind of more of a return to normalcy in that sense.
1: Yeah, and one of the things I thought was interesting is, I mean, even in inaugural addresses, you know, there's always some talk, you know, except for Trump, there's always some sort of talk about unity and the importance of yep. democracy. But but it was interesting, you know, given the events that we've had over the past, you know, few weeks, um, you know, you could tell there was a, still a different tone to it, right? I mean, the plea yeah. for unity was much more prolonged, um, much more earnest. Um, almost, so you know, I'm pleading with you all to, you know, let's lower the temperature, let's defend the truth, let's bring about healing and restoration, let's honor the constitution. Democracy is precious and it's fragile, but it's prevailed, but we need to protect it, right? You know, yep. let's let's make sure that he says, you know, quote, every disagreement doesn't have to be cause for total war. And a great right. quote, and he just, you know, right. goes on along that theme, you know, and returns to repeatedly. And I think that's exactly what was needed, given, every, given everything that has happened um, in recent days and weeks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There were some combative lines, though. I mean, this overall, this is a very palliative speech. But uh, as someone who studies terrorism, I mean, it was notable that this is the first time I'm aware of in a, in a presidential inaugural address, the president calls out domestic terrorism. And, of course, the president takes of, you know, part of the, their oath is to defend the Constitution against threats foreign and domestic. But this is the first time the president has really leaned into defending the Constitution against domestic threats of terrorism. And... Yep. I found that notable. Not, I mean, obviously warranted, but very notable. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, I also need to mention uh, this took place in and around inauguration, but was not part of the Biden uh, administration's plans for inauguration. Uh, The uh, outgoing president, Donald Trump, did issue about a hundred or so pardons. Uh, in the midst of his last day, one of those pardons coming as near as I can figure within the last hour of his presidency. Uh, and so, um, notably, uh, President Trump did not attempt to pardon himself, nor did he pardon any members of his family. He did pardon Steve Bannon and Little Wayne. Uh yeah. <laughs> And a, and a few other uh, um, notable celebrities, but not not anyone really close to his own administration other than other than Bannon I think.
1: right Yeah yeah, yeah. I mean it is interesting for um, for the guy who said, you know I'm going to drain the swamp. So he came in and used parlayed his office into sort of you know personal wealth right yep. and has continued to string along his supporters to donate to him because mm-hmm. he's their last best hope, has right. raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Which he still
2: possesses in his super PAC, by the way.
1: Which he does, right. right? Has raised millions and millions of dollars off of these lies, and has gone on to pardon some of the people that have helped him do that, that have helped duped, dupe his own followers, and just other people who are sort of, you know, committed real crimes, and are part of sort of corrupt right. Washington, some of the worst, right? So. I mean, so for a guy who's going to drain the swamp, um, he only he only added to it. Right. Right. Um, so it's it's um, it's a hypocrisy.
2: Really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What. Um, do you have any sense that people who support the president will see it as hypocrisy? Well, My first of all,
1: I don't I don't think yeah, I mean there is, there is some there are some people who are upset. So, you know, notably a lot of the sort of the people who um, supported the protest or the writing or engaged in it themselves, they are upset that they didn't get any pardons, right? So, nope. like we right. stuck our necks out for Trump who told us to come here and right. he didn't issue any pardons for us. He only issued pardons to his his friends or to people who had convicted, you know, been convicted of crimes, even part Democrat, you know, heaven forbid. Yeah. So, um so yeah there is some pushback against that although i my suspicion just based off of the reactions i've been seeing is that most of MAGA world is not paying attention to that super closely right or is branding this as sort of fake news right so mm-hmm. yeah. um it's not getting a lot of a lot of attention um, yeah
0: so i mean jim at the point like the QAnon folks um i'm seeing some sort of suggestions they're kind of upset about this right and some of them are shaken um because like first of all i mean that you know biden actually got inaugurated nothing you know things didn't come to pass the way they were supposed to right um and and yeah we didn't you know people who stuck their necks out for the president didn't get pardoned my guess is on the whole it's going to be seen as kind of more business as usual presidents usually pardon people on their way out i don't know that people pay all that much attention to most of the names on there Usually, there's a few that stand out, and so like you know, like Steve yeah. Bannon and Little Wayne. But you know, I think for most most of them, it's just gonna be one more thing, and yep, you get forgotten
1: quickly. Yeah, it'll blow over.
2: So, can I? Um, this is a small point. I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I am actually gonna address, as a political psychologist, this story that I've seen a lot in the news in the last 48 hours about QAnon, mm-hmm. actually 24 hours, because. Okay. It's true. Journalists have been on some of the QAnon message boards. They've been watching the reactions yep. and, and they've been almost reporters that is, have been almost gleeful at the Schadenfreude they're experiencing as members of QAnon who many of whom believed or appeared to believe that up until the very last minute, Donald Trump was Donald going Trump. to uh, expose the rest of Washington as a bunch of pedophilic cannibals and, um, and was going to save the country, and when he didn't, there were posts of shock and disbelief. But let me just pause here and say, sort of an Occam's razor style, these anonymous boards that um, QAnon people are posting on um, allow anyone to post on there, true believers as well as trolls. And it wouldn't people who are experiencing high degrees of cognitive dissonance, like true believers of QAnon, might have been probably aren't posting their incredulous disbelief on the board. They're probably just being quiet. And so my sense is that some of these shocked cries of disbelief are not necessarily the people that we're actually worried about in terms of the real believers of the conspiracy, but perhaps the hangers-on, the sort of sideline enjoyers of this essentially mass role-playing game that's been built up around these, these fictitious stories. So I, I don't I don't take this quite as gleefully as some reports have, have tried to portray.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean I wouldn't be surprised if you're right, although I do hope they the reports are <laughs> like I mean, um it would be good for the country if, if QAnon could, you know, fade into oblivion, right? Because it's a it's a terrible force. But yeah, uh, unfortunately that's not unlikely.
2: Let me let me I'll I'll make I'll stick an even bigger, bolder claim here. QAnon won't go away if it's disproven. QAnon goes away when it becomes boring. Yep. Yeah, right. And and it's not boring yet.
0: Right, Right. and you can't, and that's the problem, right? I mean, I was just having this exchange with someone, but you can't disprove these things, right? Because they're conspiracy theories and Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories by their kind of very nature are just undisprovable, right? Because you, well, if there's proof against it, that just shows how deep the rabbit hole goes, right? Yes,
2: exactly. More evidence
0: of the cover up, right?
2: Yeah.
1: I, I do think that over time it will sort of lose lose some of the people who were not as deep into it, right? So one yeah. one political commentator says these things have a half-life, and I think it's a useful way yep. of thinking about it, right? Yep. So over over a period of time, you will get, you know, a number of people sort of dropping off, um, no longer being invested. Right. But you always still, even 10 years down the road, still have some super hardcore people that are still yep. invested. But yep. eventually it'll drop off. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it was more of a question of of how soon will that drop off um, in the next couple of three years? Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. will this movement tend to be pretty closely associated with sort of you know, large chunks of, you know, the Republican right, um, or it will be kind of sort of excluded and become like so fringy that they don't really have a lot of power left. That's kind of the more important question, and that remains to be seen.
2: Uh, The good news is, such as it is, is because uh, participation in this is anonymous, and with a couple of notable exceptions in Congress, no one has really affiliated themselves with QAnon. It will be fairly easy for almost any political actor, either a voter or a candidate, to walk away from this and say, oh, yeah, I never bought that stuff. That was all nonsense, right. even if they were really behind one of those usernames. Right. Um, let's switch gears. Let's get back to the uh, newly inaugurated uh, Biden administration. What does it look like for Joe Biden's, we talk, often talk for presidents about the first 100 days and Biden certainly will have some first 100 day priorities, but we already have a sense of what his first 10 day priorities are. Um, what do we see? What do you, what's notable to you all?
1: Um, well, I think it's helpful to start by looking at the executive orders that he signed and um, memoranda um, yesterday. So typically when presidents come into office, even their first day, they might sign one or two executive orders. Um, and they might be symbolic, um, maybe not have a lot of sort of sort of sweeping policy implications, but Biden swept in and issued almost 20 um, and they cover the whole gamut. Um, So we're looking at, and I'll just run through these really fast, national mask mandate on federal property, um, revoking the Keystone uh, pipeline permit, reverse travel ban from largely Muslim and African countries, rejoining the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Accord, um, reestablishing the national security um, team that's responsible for global health, which was disbanded by Trump. Um, ordering sort of an order that helps pave the way for rejoining and renegotiating the Iran nuclear deal um, that b- basically was pulled out of under the, the Trump administration that had been brokered uh, by the Obama administration. There's an order to review and, and maybe potentially reverse 103 Trump era actions on the environment and health. but of course because these are you know, Trump's executive actions, they can be potentially undone by future executives. And this right. presages um, basically what will probably be a, a total reversal of the deregulation under um, under Trump. Um, although all of this is going to get tied up in the court system because that's just the way things work. There's a halting of the construction of the US Mexican border wall. Um, there's um, a continuation of the federal eviction moratorium uh, through the end of March. Mm-hmm. Um, there's ongoing sort of student ro- loan relief through September. Um, there's also actions for the DACA program and an order mandating the inclusion of non-citizens in the U.S. Census. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Some of it's more, um, you know, not nothing too surprising. Um, some of it more controversial, some of it less.
0: Yeah. I mean, and part of this is like, I think, a result of the fact that Biden is following an unusual president, right? I mean, Trump made some very unusual moves, And so I think there was a sense in which, like, he felt like we need to correct some of these things um, done by executive order by Trump, right? Um, On kind of day one, let's let's launch a new tone, let's start a new tone, and let's get make it clear to people where we're going um, as quickly as possible. So maybe you know this might be a new normal, right? Honestly, like going forward, as presidents come in, I mean, if you're going to do more things by executive action, it means the president can undo more things by executive action,
1: Um, and that's really what we're seeing here, I think. Right, which is why we want to do less things by executive action. Correct. Uh, I will, Correct. I will um, abstain from going on a rant about this, but um, <laughs> but that is why you're seeing a lot of this sort of whiplash um, from yep. one presidency yep. to the next on basically almost every policy issue now. Um, yep. So yep. We, we can sort of, you know, talk about why. And I think that's an important conversation we'll yep. have in the coming weeks as we look at to what this new administration is going to do. Um, but but that is, you know, something that we're seeing that's sort of no, baked in at this point.
0: Right, right. And that's I think it's a hugely important point. I mean, like, when you choose to just get things done by executive action, you don't do the hard work of getting it through Congress, right, which has been an issue with Trump's administration, by and large. It was an issue with Obama's administration. And it's gotten harder to get things through Congress. But when you do that, your your accomplishments are very fleeting, um, because the next president with a stroke of a pen can just get rid of it. Um, and that's why, you know, like, a bunch of things Trump did, they're gone we still have Obamacare, right? Because that went through Congress and that got signed, right? That's a big, big difference.
1: And what it does is this creates this nasty sort of feedback loop, right? So there's polarization, that means that members of Congress don't want to get together and compromise um, on either side, which means the executive is like, well, my hands are tied, I can't do anything, I can't get any legislation through, so I'm gonna try to do all this with sort of the executive pen, right? And then they issue all these orders, implement, and then it creates sort of a backlash um, and, and, you know, the next party sweeps into office and basically tries to do everything else, you know, via the executive pen and all right. that just creates more polarization, right? So that's that's kind of the nasty feedback loop that we're in. And I don't see us getting out of that anytime soon.
2: Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> the nasty feedback loop you just described, Francis Fukuyama refers to as political decay. And what he argues is because we have a significant number of veto players in the American-elect government, meaning that we have a... Um, a filibuster um, minority rule in the, uh, in the Senate um, because we have uh, a president who has the ability to sign executive orders because we have these polarized uh, parties. Um, This is a, this is a problem for, um, for political development. Um, And essentially we're ossifying. We're moving the opposite direction of development. It's political decay. Um, And so he does, he has some prescriptions for getting out of this, but they're hard. And they involve a fair amount of activism on the part of, of the population to essentially demand their parties become um, less entrenched. And, and, but but
1: the the problem with that is like what you have now. I mean, I totally get all that, and Fukuyama is definitely onto something. But the, but the problem is, you know, the the population that is most activist is also the most polarized too. Exactly, and, yep. and yep. as polarization increases, right. the willingness to get involved in politics in the middle decreases, right? Which That's is the exact right. opposite of what you want. And That's so right. even though you took all citizens into account, we, you know, right. still fall along sort of a bell curve, you might say, ideologically, for the purposes yeah. of those people who are voting most consistently and are active in their party's right. primaries. It's bimodal, right? Um,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? And that's where the problem is. And getting that center to basically yep. activate, that's a real problem. But the problem is as polarization increases, the center basically checks out more and more. Um, and yeah. that's kind of a problem that we're in.
0: Yeah, that's basically what Liliana Mason says in the Uncivil Agreement, which I've cited on here before. But you know, like you'd think activism would be good for democracy. And in theory, certain kinds could be, but not the kind we're having for exactly the reasons you just laid out in that.
2: And so I think um, I'm worried about this from an international relations perspective because now these executive orders have really, as, as Matt detailed, have started to impinge upon the yep. international sphere as well, uh, yep. leaving and rejoining the World Health Organization, leaving and rejoining the Paris Climate Agreements, leaving and potentially restarting uh, the JCPOA. Um, we can we can live with a certain level of fecklessness in terms of domestic policy. Yep. Um although it hurts our citizens. Uh, but um, if we continue to do this at the international level, um, we may find that other countries simply don't want to play ball with us anymore. And right. we've already seen this in places like the uh, the ending of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, which was um, done at the beginning of the Trump administration, which I don't think Biden has a window to restart the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I think that ship has sailed really to America's economic detriment.
1: Uh Yeah. And and the thing is, you know, about the Iran nuclear deal and the World Health Organization and the Paris Climate Accords, like there are actually good arguments for getting out of all of them. But here's the problem. Even if you grant that. Having the U.S. sort of vacillate um, between yeah. being in them yeah. and then leaving and then rejoining, you know that alone, even if you disagree for good policy reasons with with those um, with those agreements, even if you disagree with them, like you know this sort of vacillation undermines sort of the U.S. ability credibility around the world and its yeah. and its power and its influence. Um, and if that's something that you're concerned about, um, then you should be concerned about this vacillation.
2: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about one of the things that um, the Biden administration probably has the best chance of accomplishing because it's closest to bipartisanship, and that is uh, COVID relief legislation. Now, already we're running into some problems here. Uh, The Biden administration has released their COVID relief plan. It's going to cost not quite $2 trillion. So a deal for only $1.9 trillion, you can have... uh, (laughs) Uh, $1,400 checks to American uh, citizens or American taxpayers, I should say. Uh, but we're also looking at a lot of other things packed into this legislation. So there's, um, it's already politically contentious. Uh, do we think, you think this passes? Do we get uh, some kind of additional early COVID relief bill through uh, the House and the very narrowly divided Senate?
1: I mean, you'll get something. The question is, what will you get? Um, And it depends on how much Democrats try to pack into this legislation, because there's a lot more than just mere COVID relief. I mean, so you do get the stimulus payments, you get um, the continuation expansion of federal unemployment checks and relief for business. That's a huge chunk. Um, you get a lot of money towards sort of ramping up a nationwide va- vaccination plan, expanding the ch- child tax credit, funding for helping schools reopen, um, extending the eviction ban, um, you know, but potentially student ro- loan relief, right? Um, but there's also some really controversial elements in this, including sort of an overnight increase of the federal minimum wage to $15 which the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says is probably going to kill 1.3 million jobs, um, and it's going to be terrible for restaurants, which are really hurting, right? Um, that's hey, can one I ask controversial. A question
2: about that? Is, that? is that raised to 15 um, attenuated over a time period, or is it like an overnight?
1: My impression it was pretty fast, um, okay. and it's also for, it also includes restaurants where the minimum yep. wage is currently $2, but because the, you know the, the employees, many of them get tips, right? Um, They're compensated differently. So at any rate, so there's a $15 minimum wage which is very controversial and um, is not going to fly well with most Republicans. There's also lots of bailouts for um, states and localities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably not going to fly with Republicans either. So here's the thing. So if Democrats want to include these things in the package, that's going to delay the package getting passed. Um, and it also is going to and it, at best, it's going to delay the process, but it also might mean the package doesn't pass as they want. Right. Because so the Senate, you know, basically has, you know, this thing called the filibuster, um, which allows for, <laughs> for know, members of the Senate who have a great deal of sort of personal power to basically block you know, sort of single handedly block the passage of legislation, which requires um, basically three fifths of the Senate or 60 votes to basically end the debate. So there can be an up or down um, vote on the piece of legislation. So basically, that means on controversial things, there is a sort of a supermajority that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more controversial things that you pack in, the more likely it is that someone's going to filibuster in which case you're not going to get to that 60 vote threshold. now there is a possibility that the Senate could try to use something called reconciliation, which is a, uh, a an arcane sort of uh, parliamentary procedure by which you can um, basically not have to you can basically end debate without the 60 votes um mm-hmm. but, reconciliation can really only be used on sort of strictly budgetary matters. And some of these really aren't right. budgetary matters, especially right, yeah. the $50 minimum wage, which is probably the most controversial piece of this. So yeah. so there's going to be a lot of pressure to move quickly, I think. Relief is really needed. And Biden has already demonstrated that he wants to hit the ground running um, just yeah. with his flurry of executive orders. And so including, I think, these more controversial measures is going to prolong that negotiation process. I, my guess is they will drop a couple of those things, much to the fury of people on the far left. My guess yeah. is they're going to drop those things, and, and this is how the thing's going to get passed. It's just a question of how long it's going to take, whether it takes a week or a month.
2: So I'm not a game theorist, but I play one on TV sometimes, and <laughs> I'm wondering <laughs> if uh, one way to one way to get through complex negotiations is to always introduce the shadow of the future. So, could you imagine when they'd say, "Okay, we're not going to raise the the minimum wage to fifteen dollars quickly. We're going to raise it gradually, um, mm. and so we'll raise it, but we're it's going to take it's going to take four years, um, and we're going to we're going to peg it out um, in increments." Is that something that could maybe get a few more Republicans to buy into this?
1: No, no, um. <laughs> okay. I mean, especially given the economic situation that we're in, right? So the idea is, you know, increasing it over that period. I mean, so the economic evidence for this is actually, like, really mixed, um, what the effects are. But sort of given the especially difficult sort of economic situation we're in, making it more difficult for businesses to sort of stay afloat is just going to be complete non-starter. Right. um, Times in which the Democrats had a little bit more wiggle room in the Senate, you know, where it's not a 50-50 tie um, that's broken by Kamala Harris, um, I would say, yeah, maybe they could squeak something through, but I, I'm I'm really doubtful about it this time. Okay, unless um, so let's say nuke the filibuster, um, which yeah. is possible. Let's say nuke the filibuster, in which case it's it's total
2: war. I I don't see them nuking the filibuster over this initial piece. Not over
1: that. Yeah. Not let's see.
2: Me, well, let me throw a different angle at you here. Um, what would... What would it look like if you put the $15 minimum wage in here, made sure that it was Republicans who killed it, so that you could have an issue to run against Republicans on in 2022?
1: I just don't know if that, I mean, certainly for some people, that's going to be a salient issue, but probably not many. Right. Yeah. And if you do that now, I mean, at eh, two years, most people are going to forget about it. And there's also plenty of people that would, you know, I think would probably lose their jobs over this, too, and would be angry. So yeah, I don't think that makes a difference. So,
0: Yeah, yeah it does. I agree. Like, I think that's a that's a difficult one to win an election on. It just doesn't feel like the right kind of issue to really fire up enough people. Um, it's too complicated. And
1: yeah, I, and I think it, it's just that would, that would be a very risky strategy. So fair I'll buy that right in the republic I mean this is the thing like especially in these giant pieces of legislation um, you've got cover, right? As yeah. a representative, yeah. if you say like, I, you can basically make up any reason you want for why you opposed or ended up supporting the bill, right? Because there's yeah. so many things yeah. that like, well, I, I had to vote for it because of, you know, this one priority that was in it, or like I couldn't vote for it because there was this problem over here. And so it yeah. just kind of worked yeah. out that way. And that's the thing about these massive bills is, you know, people can make up any reason that they want for supporting or opposing it. So, right. and then that, that's what members of Congress do routinely.
2: Yep, so. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um I uh, my last game theoretic tactic here is if you're a moderate democrat like like a Joe Biden perhaps and you know the left in your own party wants something like a $15 minimum wage you let this be in your initial proposal as a sacrificial lamb. There's other things you want more than this but you let this in here so that when you let it go it looks like you're working with republicans. You can lift. A, you can you can cast the blame on them. They're the ones who killed that part. But gosh darn it, we need the relief, and that saved yeah. other more central parts of your belief package. Yep.
1: Yeah. No, I, I would say so. Um, yeah. There's 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 bigger things that Biden wants to tackle other than the fifteen dollar. I would think you he would probably personally like to have it, but it's it's not sort of top priority for him. Yep. Yeah. Agreed.
2: What are some of the priorities for Biden that we should be paying attention to? Well, um,
1: so there's two sort of initial legislative proposals that he's made. Um, sort of one is to remove uh, a lot of liability protections for gun manufacturers. Um, so this would be so that if there was a victim of a shooting, they could sue a gun manufacturer in court and get compensation. Um, so this probably isn't going to go anywhere, but that's something that he signaled yesterday as legislation that he wants to propose. I think this might be another sacrificial lamb. Um, there's also, and this is probably the more interesting one, sort of proposed legislation to provide a sort of, if I remember correctly, an eight year pathway to citizenship for all residents residing mm-hmm. illegally in the United States, which is estimated to be eleven million, probably also not going to fly. Um, although perhaps there might be some sort of some sort of, you know, smaller potatoes sort of legislative compromise in the end on immigration, I'm not sure that. I'm not sure that this is going to happen. Um, uh, we've not had any sort of sweeping, comprehensive immigration reform for, uh, for since eternity, um uh, even though it's been needed. <laughs> but um, and almost everyone recognizes that it's been needed, but there's just not enough sort of agreement on what that would look like. And so I don't see this sort of flying. I think he'll try to try to sort of bring about this sort of policy goal using uh, more executive means and through the courts. We'll see how it plays out. So, but I, I think he's trying to signal that this is a priority that he has. And of course, there's infrastructure as well. Um, there's potentially an infrastructure bill on the horizon. Um, he, currently, I, last time I read, is he's hoping for a $2 trillion spending package on infrastructure that basically includes everything you could think of. Um, but again, you know, they're going to have to potentially work with with Republicans on this. So, we'll see. Can I ask you? Immediate- On that front.
2: Can I ask you guys to weigh in briefly on a philosophical question? Sure. All right. Are guns like cigarettes? Here's what I mean by that. Um, (laughs) uh, The proposal from the Biden administration is to allow in some ways gun manufacturers to be sued uh, for the harm caused by their products. We have allowed Uh, through the last couple of decades for tobacco companies to be sued because of the danger of cigarettes and and other tobacco products to the point that it's really fundamentally changed American society. Um, The current generation of people who can smoke, who can consume tobacco legally um, are consuming tobacco at less than half the rate the prior generation did. We've seen a dramatic decrease in tobacco consumption, partially, partially, not entirely, but partially because... um, the lawsuits against tobacco companies yielded hundreds of millions of dollars, which states have used for extensive anti-tobacco campaigns. Mm-hmm. All right. If a gun is like that, if a gun is innately harmful to its consumers, like cigarettes are, then I think that there's an argument to be made that, that the Biden administration has a case here that people should be able to sue gun manufacturers. But I'm not sure that a gun is, is like a cigarette. And I think a gun used properly is not harmful like a cigarette used properly is. Um, and I think this is problematic if it's not like that. If a gun is more like a car used properly is a safe transportation device, then I'm not sure that we should be able th- the same kinds of liability issues should exist.
1: Right.
0: Well, I, right. I, I
2: yeah, yeah, I, I
1: think so, and you have to think like what. So you're going to sue the gun manufacturers to what end, right? So you're going right. to to get a giant pool of money to do what, right? To advertise against the purchase and the use of firearms, which is essentially what you have in the case. Or, or to,
2: or to dry up the market of of, of personal of of manufactured uh, handguns, basically. Yeah.
1: Which is pie in the sky it would never happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> like I don't even know. Yeah. How that would even work conceivably. And also, I mean, there's also a whole other set of other sorts of laws that restrict and impose you know, taxes right on right. the use of tobacco, right, in a very different sort of way yeah. than you get for gun use um, and purchasing it, whatever. So, I mean, if if you're wanting to sort of address the issue of gun violence, there are far more sort yeah. of productive ways to do that um, than sort of suing gun manufacturers. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say they're different. I haven't you know thought about that comparison um, a whole lot, but.
0: I think uh, a big big difference. It's, it's, it's like, also not
1: going to fly through
0: through yeah. Congress. No, I don't think. No, it's not going to fly through Congress, and it's. Uh, I think a big difference is. I mean, first of all, like, so cigarette manufacturers got in trouble in part because they also were misleading people about this for a while, right? Mm-hmm. And they they yeah. they knew more than they were letting on, right? That was a problem. I think is there's, there's the problem of like this, like you're selling people this product, saying like, oh, this is just enjoyable, and in fact, it's actually harmful to them, right? Um, and, and guns are not like that I mean, guns are manufactured all along is like they are lethal devices, right? They are intended to be able to shoot things, right? Um, sometimes you might just shoot at a target. Other times you might be shooting at, you know, animals in the woods, right? But, but they mm-hmm. are intended for that. Everyone knows this, right? Um, and so I just don't see how you, yeah, how you sell that. Like that just yeah.
2: Really yeah. And, and yeah.
1: I, I will say this too, like, let's just say this does pass through. It's going to be immediately challenged in the federal courts. Yeah. And I suspect it would be struck down, um, yep. in the long run. Um, yeah. unless there was, you know, some sort of proof that, you know, that the gun companies were touting the use of guns and, and marketing them in an irresponsible way. All
2: right. A, a
1: really broad sweeping law is is right. is not. I mean, it's not going to pass muster
2: in the right system. Yeah, if you could, if you couldn't tell, I'm I'm sort of skeptical of this argument right. too. A, a cigarette consumed as intended by the manufacturer does cause you cancer. A ha- right. uh, a gun used as intended by the manufacturer does not necessarily harm anyone. It's it. There are several other precipitating conditions are required for harm to come from a firearm.
0: Correct. Right.
2: So, all right. Um, we have a lot going on here, but the overriding theme has been this is a closely divided Congress. It is a comparatively moderate Democratic president um, who will be responding to pressures both on his right and his left. As we specifically move into sort of Biden's relationship with the Senate, in particular, with his own Vice President Kamala Harris likely to be presiding over a number of votes, especially early on, as we figure out the actual chairmanships and the governance of the Senate, how what's this power sharing relationship going to look like, Matt? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> um, so, so typically.
1: Whichever political party has majority in either the House or the Senate gets a equivalently sized majority in all the committees and the subcommittees, as well as the chairs of those committees and subcommittees. But what do you do when the Senate is perfectly divided? Right. right. Um, this is more likely to happen in the Senate than the House. Right. I mean, well, it can't happen in the House. But mm-hmm. at any rate, so so of course, we know that for just general votes on the floor the vice president casts a tie-breaking vote, which effectively gives Democrats the slimmest of, of possible majorities. The question is, what do you do um, with these 50-50 you know splits in the committee system? Um and, and who do you and who gets to be the majority leader? Who gets to be my, the minority leader? So basically, the last time this happened was way back in 2001, so 20 years ago. There was a 50-50 split, and there was a deal negotiated by Trent Lott for the Republicans and Tom Daschle for the Democrats Um, to basically split the committees evenly, or split the committee chairs evenly between the two parties. um, And the the committees would basically also be perfectly evenly divided, even number of Democrats and Republicans. But the tied votes, so if there was, you know. a tie on a piece of legislation um, or on a nominee, for example, those would automatically advance to the floor where where presumably um, they would achieve democratic support, even if it meant sort of the vice president casting sort of the tie breaking vote. So
2: um,
1: now we're presuming that something like this is going to happen. Um, Schumer, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell have not come to an agreement yet. Part of the reason for this is that McConnell has basically insisted that, for basically, that the Democrats, led by Schumer, will guarantee that they will not end the filibuster, that they will not change the Senate rules um, to allow the Democrats to basically run all the legislation through on their own without that 60 vote requirement. So, so McConnell wants to preserve that 60 vote requirement for ending debate because that, you know, allows Republicans more power to sort of shape the legislation that gets pushed through. McConnell wants a guarantee in advance that Democrats won't do this. The Democrats understandably are saying we're not going to issue some sort of guarantee. We're not going to issue any guarantees along these lines. So my prediction is that in the end, they will sort of dodge on that question Um, And the filibuster will remain in place, but there will be no guarantee that it won't be withdrawn in the future. So Democrats will say it's in place for now, but we're not offering any promises. And if you try, if you Republicans try to block us too much, um, we will threaten to yank the filibuster on you. Um, And I think that in turn will cause enough Republicans who are institutionalists um, and who care about preserving that sort of power um, that will cause enough Republicans to to not try to block Democratic actions too much because they're gonna want to preserve that filibuster to prevent Senate Democrats and Democrats in general at the federal level from imposing some of the more extreme things that have been floated, um, such as um Puerto Rican or DC statehood or packing the Supreme Court or the things that they really want to avoid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so I- Hoping that this will ultimately mean that the most extreme stuff won't happen, and that there will be some incentive on both sides to compromise. Um, my guess is sometime in the next week or so, at the latest, you will see Schumer and McConnell come together um, on some sort of compromise um, that will sort of punt on the filibuster question in some way. But
0: mm-hmm.
2: but I don't have a crystal ball, so we'll, we'll have to see what
0: happens. Yeah, who knows? That's
2: a good good guess. I. I'll throw one thing in here, which is I think the coronavirus might save the filibuster. Mm. Tell us more. All right. I could All right. The, this hypothesis. Um, because the initial round of COVID relief um, is really based on um, financial stimulus to consumers but also to facilitating the rollout of the vaccine, which has been anemic so far. Yeah. Um, there is going to be a series of legislations which both sides have an interest in seeing passed. Yeah, you don't wanna jack up the uh, minimum wage to $15 an hour, but that's that might be a canard. And so like you, the core of that legislation is gonna be pretty popular amongst all but the most extreme members of both parties. And because you have that as your basis for starting, You also need to make sure that you get that through without a question about the filibuster, which will actually build in a bit of a bridge to get the filibuster sustained. Um, And so I think that if there was going to be a time to nuke the filibuster, it would be actually pretty early on in in Biden's presidency. But because Biden can't afford to do it early on in his presidency, I think it sticks around.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Right. Yeah, I, I think if they're seats, they might be more likely to nuke it, but they just don't have that. Um, right. and, and also to be clear, and we said this before, and and I mean uh Kirsten Cinema of Arizona and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, two senators who are sort of the most moderate of the Democrats have come out and said, We do not support nuking the filibuster.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, right. so you know, basically, and, and because, and you would need them to be on board so that you would have 50 Democrats plus Kamala Harris voting to change right. the Senate rules, right? Although, to be yeah. clear,
2: I don't think Manchin even supports $1,400 checks to American. Uh, I'm not sure he does uh, either. either. I,
1: I think he'll probably go along with it in the end. Um, right. You're wrong. Um, but yeah, Maybe. I
2: mean, $14,000 just to West Virginians. How about that? <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Uh, Actually, that, that would be worse. He would, he would like. Because it would be on him and make him look bad, but, um, but yeah, I just think you know, unless Republicans really push their luck and push too hard, yeah. and try to obstruct every single thing, which McConnell will probably keep them from doing, if McConnell has any say in the matter, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think you know, Democrats will will not try to initially exercise the the filibuster, um,
2: new Game option. Yeah. We shall see. Let's, let's talk just briefly about uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, the One of the first items on the Senate's agenda between Schumer and McConnell, in addition to this, is an impeachment trial. Mm. Yes. When's the trial going to? This is so to be clear, uh, the House prior to the end of the Trump presidency impeached President Trump. That impeachment vote doesn't go away just because a new president is inaugurated. Um, A public official, we believe, um, can be impeached even if they're no longer in office. Um, and this is significant for Trump because, amongst other things, he could lose potentially, if removed, um, the ability to run for office again in the future. Right. So what's 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 the timetable for this looking like?
1: Well, um, just checking the news briefly, and as of like half an hour ago, so I guess around four o'clock um, on January 21st, McConnell has proposed that the Senate basically wait um, to hold the trial until February, theoretically, to give uh, Trump's legal team a couple of weeks to prepare for the trial. Um, So usually these things take a while to play out. Um, So this is certainly, Certainly, something well within precedent for it to take a few weeks for the trial to ramp up, especially given that um, you know a new president has just been sworn in and there's legislation. Right. And the Senate of course has to confirm all of these uh, executive appointments, and there's a mm-hmm. slew of them. So you know, yeah. um, we're already January, you know, 2021. So waiting until early February is certainly um, certainly normal, I would say. So yeah. I would say sometime yeah. in the next two weeks they're gonna they're gonna get started.
2: Um, does that change the likely vote outcome? If, if passion, if, if passion's cool, um, and we get into mid February and Biden has already been president for nearly a month, does that reduce the likelihood that you get 67 votes in the Senate to convict Trump?
1: I mean, I don't know if the, yeah, it, it might make a bit of a difference. I mean, I, I tend to doubt, um, that you're going to get 17 uh, Republicans on board anyway, um and just because you know a lot of them have come out and said you know like you know we don't support impeachment because the country needs to move on and we don't want to inflame division and etc etc there's just a lot of hand waving there's a now this also kind of removes the excuse that the process is moving too fast right if there's a delay um i don't know it's it's hard to say i mean there's still a lot of support for trump um uh-huh. amidst sort of, sort of middle-of-the-road MAGA world, right? So maybe the most extreme QAnon people, some of them are angry at Trump, but most people are still very happy with Trump, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of, I mean, there's, you know, there's whole groups within the GOP that are punishing other GOP leaders that have not fallen in line. So the Arizona GOP-controlled legislature is voting to censure a, uh, Republican Governor Dooley for basically not overturning the results of the Arizona election. I mean, that's just mind blowing. Right. So. So this is out there. um, And I think this this means that there's not enough Republicans jumping on board. But here's here's my prediction. So so either you're going to have six or nine votes for conviction, which is not nearly enough, or you'll get 17 to 20 there's probably not gonna be just a few votes short and like, well, why would that be the case? And I think it's this, there's safety in numbers, right? Mm-hmm. There are currently a number of senators that are sort of sitting on the fence that are sort of weighing their options mm-hmm. sort of sticking their finger up and seeing which way the wind's blowing. Um, and ultimately those senators aren't gonna jump unless a lot of other similar senators are willing to jump with right. them, they need the political cover. Um, and also, you know, voting for barring, you know, convicting and barring Trump and then Trump not getting barred is all downside and no upside for them, yep. right? So, right. so I think we're either going to get six to nine votes, which is well short, or you're going to get just enough. Yep, Seven to
0: twenty. Yeah, yeah I think that makes sense. And I, you know, I, I kind of went through and did a rough count at one point of the senators, like who could I imagine right jumping and voting for the president's conviction? And I think the. The highest you can get is about 20, maybe 25, like maybe half the Republican caucus. Where which I is more than enough. Which is enough, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but that's like my kind of wildest imaginations of like who might do it, right? Like there's a, a hard group of at least 25 who I just, you yeah, know, yeah. it's hard for me to imagine what's the scenario in which they say, yeah. I'm pulling that trigger. And I think that, yeah, the, the point of doing this really, if you're going to do it is to bar him from office, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. so you have to, do. I mean, it's, it's a kind of both. And I mean, if you're going to do that, if you say he has, you know, demonstrated, you know, behavior that is just unacceptable, we cannot risk this person being in federal office again. Um, then you do that. Otherwise, I mean, the, the whole exercise is sort of, it's just symbolic and it is, Frankly, somewhat pointless. I mean, he's already been impeached twice, right? Like, so you've mm-hmm. you've made a symbolic gesture already, um, and you know, I, I just don't know what this does other than you know, I kind of add more on there. When that, and in that case, that you know, I'm sort of I, I'm sympathetic sympathetic to the Republicans who are arguing like, isn't this just more division, right? For no purpose, right? So there's a purpose if you're barring him. If otherwise, I'm not sure what you're really doing. Cause you're not evicting him from office. He's already gone. <laughs> right. Like
2: with the possibility of coming back. And I think that's the, that's really the very important operative condition. Yeah. here. Right. Um, we said at the top of this podcast that uh, with the loss of the two Georgia Senate races yeah. and um, Joe Biden's victory, uh, the Republicans are in the midst of uh, Matt, you called it a civil war. And I'm, I, I would certainly say it's an identity crisis. Yeah. Um, uh, and part of the, identity crisis. What's that? It's a violent
0: identity crisis. Violent identity crisis. <laughs> um,
2: yes. yes.
0: So,
2: um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Um, and the uh, these so, fact the question for somebody like McConnell is: Is the Republican Party viable moving forward with a healthy dose of the personality cult of Donald Trump? And if it is viable, then I think the re- that number drops down to Matt's position of six to nine. But if McConnell and other key leaders, and I'm thinking about John Thune here, um, right. uh, some of the other you know kind of key institutional Republicans um, who say, I, I, we need to exercise, excise Donald Trump from the party. We need to try and reduce this. And we think his inability to run for office again will do that. That's how you get to 20 votes, uh, 20 Republicans um, supporting removal, Um, because it's this is really about where the GOP tries to go as a party. And I don't have a sense yet of how they'll how they're going to make that calculation. Yeah. I mean, so a few thoughts. So the GOP
1: civil war started ramping up in December. But at that point, it still very much looked like this was still Trump's party. right? Right. You think back to that time when you know GOP members were sort of running around saying like oh we have to wait for the process and maybe there is some fraud and we should all sort of we should all this play out right so yep. Trump still had a tight grip um but there are still those pushing back well now the civil war um has taken a turn and the anti-Trump side has more allies and more energy now so now it's it's more <laughs> it's anybody's game as to which way this is this is going to pan out um, so back thanksgiving things look very different right so but here's the problem and you know other people have pointed this out too is like there's no tent big enough to hold people who want to storm the capitol and launch a revolution and politicians who support that and you know overthrow the election you know electoral college results so you know there's not a big enough tent for those people and people who care about the constitution rule of law norms um sort of normal governing, right? Like how can you have one party that contains both? And that's why there is such sort of a, a deep division. Um, and, you know, not only within sort of the rank and file members, but also also all the way up to the highest levels to, you know, senators basically. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I, I'm still fairly skeptical. I mean, so there was, you know, there's some polling from about a week ago, how 57% of Republicans said Trump should be the 2024 GOP candidate, right? Um, that's... That's a big number, right? Yep. Um, his approval ratings down, but it's still, you know, there's still a critical mass of Republicans that are still on board with him, still think he d- was a great president, right? Didn't like his style, but think he was fundamentally a fighter and fundamentally good for the country, right? Now, I do think that personality cults fizzle, right, in the long run, especially once the personality has diminished voice and power. So I think that's mm-hmm. cutting the other way. Um now, especially that Trump has been sort of defanged, he doesn't have Twitter anymore, right? So I don't know. So I, I have I'm conflicted because I see sort of reasons on both sides for for why each side of this GOP civil war could sort of end up winning out. I don't think I don't think we're gonna have a sense of that for, for some time. Maybe by the summer, maybe this time next year, but it's yeah. just too early to say.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. And the nightmare scenario for the Republicans, right, is you impeach and convict the president, right? Um, you bar him from office. They go to the courts with this and it somehow gets overturned, right? As Because one, one argument you're getting on the Trump side is like, this is kind of illegit. You shouldn't be able to sort of try a president who is no longer in office, right? Like that's not a legitimate process. And we've we mentioned last time, you know, there is a precedent for this, right? Um, but I don't think that one was challenged in the courts, right? So, I mean, like, you don't know for sure, right? Like, is this actually okay to do? Um, and I think there is at least some, some question there, right? So I think that that's the real nightmare for the Republicans is you, you, you try to stick the knife in Trump, you do.
1: And then he gets out from it because of through the courts. And that's the argument that you're going to see made by Trump's defense team. Um, and the point isn't of their defense team isn't to like, well, this is illegitimate, but it's to scare off enough Republicans and think oh, yeah. the Supreme Court might buy this argument. Yeah. I think if this made this way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would say, well, Congress is a powerful branch of government. We're not going to overrule it on a political question because mm-hmm. a lot of times Congress, you know, the court doesn't like to overrule Congress on political questions. Um, and so I think they would let it stand, actually. And I think if you go back and if you're, you know, you know, if you take an originalist approach to the Constitution, yep. look at how yep. it's developed, and I mentioned this a little bit last time. I think there's good reason for them to let it stand on originalist grounds too. But, yep. but even that aside, I yeah, I don't know. But again, it's still what if, right? Um, and like you it said, is. Andy, you know that sort of little risk is we back to their minds, yeah. Um, and that might be enough to to scare off scare yep. off enough uh, right. senators. And I do suspect
0: court. you're right about the Supreme Court. But I think there's a non-zero chance that it could go the other way. And that, yes. that will be scary to, to senators. <laughs> yes.
2: Well, especially because this is all probabilistic assessment anyway. Um, if Mitch McConnell believes he could sort of excise Trump from the party um, and restore the party to something closer to, I hesitate to use the word McConnellism, but at least sort of. <laughs> The vein upon, uh, within which uh, George W. Bush and Mitt Romney um, were and John McCain all ran as Republican candidates, right. then I think he would like to do that very much. Uh, oh, yeah. But if he can't, he certainly doesn't want to cut off his nose to spite his face and, right. and lose a significant chunk of his voting base. Um Right. and he he certainly doesn't want trump activated on the sidelines undermining the republican party he might he might succeed in excising trump and losing to democrats in 22 and 24 and he desperately doesn't want that to happen
1: right right and i think there's a concern also of just like you know not giving giving more gas for sort of the yep. you know the the Trump machine, right? Of like getting the base fired up, um, seeing, you know, Trump as continually being beaten down, even as he's left office and whatever, because there's a lot of grievance there, right? About yeah. how Trump was, was treated and some of it's deserved. Some of it wasn't, but at the yeah. very least, you know, why sort of, why kick the dog once it's down is kind of the idea. You're mm-hmm. not really accomplishing anything unless, you know, for sure you can bar, but you know, there's some, there's some questions there. So. Yeah.
2: yeah. Uh- um, um, Trump is, um, is deeply unpopular right now. He has a 38% approval rating from 538. That's the last number they're going to publish on him. Um, but we know that ex-presidents often exit unpopularly and they gain popularity over time. And I, I suspect, I hypothesize, Trump will do that even more than most because he has the chance of being elected again. So although Trump's ceiling was never particularly high in terms of popularity, I, his floor has remained high as well. And we've talked about that yep. um, ad nauseum, yep. but I expect him to rebound somewhat from that 38% approval rating, maybe right. up to somewhere around 44%, uh, percent, 45%. Um, and that's more than enough to be a significant challenge to the core of the Republican Party. Yep. Yep.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. 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 And it really depends on how, <laughs> I don't know, I think, I mean, you have seen some indication that, you know, Trump's approval rating has dropped well below his floor amongst Republicans, right? So he's never gone below a certain amount, yeah. about, you know, 36% amongst um But but it's actually dropped. And most of that has been amongst Republicans. Mm -hmm. Um, So mainly because Democratic approval amongst Democrats for Trump has been basically in the sub basement. (laughs) So if it's It's going to drop, it's going to drop amongst Republicans. But there has been some drop. And I I wonder if if, you know, some of those, you know, Republicans who reluctantly got on board with Trump back in 2016 are going to look back and say, like, yeah, this was not great for the party. And we would prefer not to have all of this over again. Look, it kind of ended in disaster. Disaster. Trump was one term. I'm not going to. Vote for him again in the primary. What I think Trump can be beaten in the primary. The problem is, like, if you have so many other Republicans running, yep. like, how are they going to position themselves? What lanes are they going to be in? And will you know they basically split all the non-Trump votes? Um, in which case, we have 2016 all over again. Because, because, right, frankly, right now we have really, really weak um, political parties, weak party organizations. They can't control, you know, yep. who ultimately wins these candidacies, right? And and I, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years if the Republican Party tries to make some adjustments to those rules. But again, those rules are are largely controlled by, you know, the state political parties, which right now state level Republican parties are pretty dang Trumpy, right? So they right. control the rules yeah. to some extent. So I don't know. I'm, yeah. I, I think you know, there's still a good chance that. It's not as good as it was, but I still think there's a good chance if Trump tried to run, he'd have a real shot.
3: Yep.
2: All right, let me let me give you a um, we're running out of time here. So let me give you three scenarios for the future of Donald Trump and his relationship to the GOP. Ooh, and tell right. me where you'd or how you would how you'd rank their likelihood. Here's the three scenarios. Trump the camp the candidate Basically, Trump almost immediately shifts into running for president in 2024. He holds rallies for the next four years. He's moving around the country. He's using that, you know, couple hundred million dollars in his super PAC to basically set himself up um, early on to run against uh, whoever, whether it's Joe Biden or someone else on the Democratic side in 2024. That's scenario one, basically what he's been doing. Scenario two is Trump the kingmaker. Trump gets a deal with OAN or Fox news um, to have a nightly uh, uh, news and opinion show. Let's be honest, mostly an opinion show um, where he gets to play sort of the role of being exited by Rush Limbaugh, but on steroids, he gets to be um, an incredibly powerful voice in the Republican party, but he also reserves for himself the possibility of running for president. If someone else doesn't meet his standards, of course, but he would be mostly being sort of this 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 uh, floating talking head. It's the Apprentice writ large. It's the it's the Apprentice, but for the president. Yep. yep. Option three: Trump the golfer. Uh, Trump <laughs> decide this is uh, it's he'll he'll still do whatever the equivalent of tweeting is on Parler. Um, he'll still every once in a while give an interview. He'll call in to Fox and Friends. But his role of trying to actively be a candidate, he might hint at it, but he's never going to be serious about it. And we'll know that he's serious about it because that super PAC money gets divvied up to other candidates. And he kind of just recedes slowly, sporadically from political life. And he enjoys, he enjoys the golf uh, around Mar-a-Lago. Hmm. So uh, Trump hey. the candidate, Trump the kingmaker, Trump the golfer. I know what he should do, but, <laughs> um,
0: but I don't, yeah, it's hard to know what he'll actually choose. I mean, I feel like Trump the golfer is the the right choice for him. Right. But, um, the, yeah, uh, the Kingmaker thing is more difficult than it was. Right. I mean, like I think he's burned bridges with Fox. So then you like, you could try starting an alternate you know network or taking over OAN and, doing that. And and it does seem like they're exploring that, but that's tricky. Um, I don't know. Does he really want to just run around acting like he's running for president for the next four years? Maybe.
2: I guess the question I'm trying to figure out is obviously he likes rallies. Yep. But does he like being in an airport hangar in Omaha? Right. I'm not sure. And and, and like, I mean, again, like
0: we've mentioned this before too, but like, keep in mind, like Donald Trump's going to be 75 this summer. He is not a young man, right? Like, does he want to just bounce around the country doing these things all the time? I and mean, maybe he gets that much energy off people, or maybe there's other ways to get energy that are, you know, that don't involve you being yanked around the country. I mean, he doesn't have Air Force One to fly around on anymore, right? So right. he's got to fund this himself. He could do that. He's got money, and he's got the PAC money. But, you know, I mean, if you try to do this in, like, high style, right, I'm not sure that he has that level of money for four years. I and mean, there's some real questions about how much money he really has. I mean, how well are his businesses doing? And we've, we talked last time about, you know, how this, they might be really struggling. I mean, he might need to actually turn and devote himself to trying to rebuild a crumbling empire,
1: right? Well, right, but can you, but maybe the way to do that is to continue to dupe your base and have them right. give you money,
3: maybe. Maybe. right?
1: In which case yep. you need to go out there. I mean, cause his brand yeah. is damaged. Yep. And I think it's sort of irretrievably damaged sort of within the business world um, yeah. then sort of the world of sort of money people with a few yep. rare exceptions right and yep. his brand is hurting, and his business is in seriously bad shape notwithstanding yep. you know um, the official sort of press releases of the Trump organization and so I think he's going to be thinking like what can I do for my brand what can I do for my own image because that's what Donald Trump cares about is his image
2: is yep. his ego right
1: what can he do for that? And I don't know. And I wonder if he's concerned, like, well, if I get back into, you know, you know running for office, am I going to lose, right? Is that going to hurt me more? Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I previously thought that Kingmaker was sort of you know, the, the role that he would sort of take on. But I wonder now if it's sort of an all or nothing thing for Trump, like there's no, I wonder if there's not any sort of Trump either has to go all in or he's out, right? And he might muddle through and try to do the halfway thing. But in the end, can he really play kingmaker? Because people really want him to be the king, right? Uh Uh, Because there's that sort of support. So like, and I don't think, would he really want to play kingmaker and then allow someone else to get the attention and allow someone else to have the top job? I don't know. I don't know if that fits his ego, even if you could sort of do it in a sort of like an apprentice style where you, you know, get lots of attention. I, I just don't know. Josh um, Holly,
2: you've won the apprentice president. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and I, yeah, pretty much. you know, like when has Donald Trump ever in his life ever said, I am going to play this game to, to pass the baton of prestige right. and power onto somebody else. Yeah, right. I'm not sure. So, I think he either sort of eventually fades and he, like, he'll probably, there'll be some fits and starts in which he tries to get something going and he'll either get traction and move forward, you know, find sort of, you know, ways back into the media environment, back into social media, gets traction, he builds up steam and he rolls into 2024, or that attempt fails. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not sure he knows what he wants to do yet. So, I think he will either be the 2020 20, candidate or or nearly the candidate or he'll be the golfer and it just remains to be seen whether yeah. or not that traction sticks or not. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's my kind of my guess. Yeah.
0: I mean there is there is like a third of version of the second one which is less the kingmaker thing where it's just like he he has news show, but it's more like he makes it all about himself. He pops off about whatever he wants to, and he's and he somehow gets a platform to do that, right? And so it allows him to carp about, you know, the, how he was robbed in twenty twenty, but he doesn't really do serious promoting of other people, and that seems to be more likely than the kingmaker role because I agree. I just don't think that fits his ego.
1: So can, can we amend category three and say um, <laughs> golfer with a microphone or something
2: like that? <laughs> live from the golf course? It's Donald Trump. Um. I assume as, that at some, in some way, in some capacity, he will be a he will be speaking into public life as much as he can because that is his default setting. I can't see him becoming a quiet, living a quiet life of solitude in Mar-a-Lago. Like he will be doing, he will be a, he will be with a microphone. The question is, to what extent do we give him that microphone? Um, he's, he's off of Twitter, which was his favorite platform, but I think that's a temporary, f- uh, um, fixture. And I'll be surprised if there isn't some other kind of electronic megaphone that he has within a year or two. Yep. Yeah. And he might intentionally pursue that, which leads him to the Kingmaker role.
1: Right. I mean, that's always been who Donald Trump is. He's always, you know, basically pursued the limelight. And found ways to rehabilitate his image, even though it looked completely tarnished beyond repair previously. I mean, you can go, that was, I mean, that was Trump the man for the decades preceding his his foray into politics, as he yeah. would do terrible things, he'd make a bunch of enemies, right? And his image would be tarnished, and he would find this way to sort of dodge and hedge and push back and fight and you know come out and you know, rehabilitate himself. Yeah. Um that's who that's what he's done multiple times i yeah. don't see any reason why he won't try to do that here i think it's gonna be harder because of you know the the credibility that he has lost right? right among there's so many places you know businesses trying to cut ties with him i think this is the biggest challenge that he's faced we'll
2: we'll see if he's up to it yeah but uh, um <laughs> well as trump is very fond of saying we'll see time will tell We'll see Indeed, indeed. I, I'll tell you what my wish is um, I would be okay if Trump became Trump the golfer but what I really want is Trump the golfer plus and, and here's the thing you guys are and, Andy's a third culture guy um, and Matt's too young so for our, for our listeners for my I'll, I'll give a shout out to my dad here for my, for my dad for Dave Moore one of the things I, I remember distinctly is on Sunday evenings we would watch something like a golf tournament or something on TV and then 60 minutes would come on in 60 Minutes, the long-running television news program would always end, of course, in the early 90s, with Andy Rooney. Do you guys know who Andy Rooney is? I nah, neither one of, one of you do. Okay, Andy Rooney was sort of this social commentator, which basically meant he was a curmudgeon. He would, get, <laughs> he would get like the last two and a half minutes on 60 Minutes, and it would just be sort of like an editorial where he got to complain about something that he had a problem with. And it would be like... You know what the problem with roll-up deodorant sticks is? You can never quite get the last little bit out. Isn't that annoying? And that would literally be the subject of one of his essays, right? It was always some little kind of thing in, in popular life that kind of bugged him. That's a great role for Donald Trump, right? I, um, rather than weighing in on important public matters of the day, if he just kind of wanted to launch some kind of broadside complaint about, um, I don't know, uh, uh, too much pulp in his orange juice, man, I'm I'm in for that. I'm I'm totally in for that. If he wants to, if he wants to go down that road, so Andy Rooney, the job is yours. Like, um, I, I Sam, uh, producer Sam. Do you know who Andy Rooney is?
3: Of course I know who Andy Rooney is.
2: Thank you so much for that. I'm also the
3: oldest person here. So. Yeah.
2: Post-political life, Donald Trump as the next Andy Rooney. No. <laughs> I have I have too much respect for Andy Rooney. What, what, what's your affinity for Andy Rooney other than just being a curmudgeon? Yeah. He was good at it. Okay. He was an effective curmudgeon. All right. I'm uh I am suggesting that in a if Donald Trump is looking for a post political life uh complaining about the level of pulp in his orange juice is just is kind of the perfect role for him.
1: Seems like rather small potatoes for such uh, a large. He,
2: Rooney would literally compare it, com- complain about the size of his potatoes. That would be perfect, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but do you actually
3: think Donald Trump would be good at doing that? He's not a humorist. I no. mean, Andy Rooney was. Uh, if I, if I'm being honest, like he actually was an effective humorist at being a curmudgeon. Like that was, that was a bit. Um, I don't <laughs> think, that, I don't think Donald, I'm a, I, I actually, I'm a big fan of comedy. I don't think he's a particularly good humorist. So I don't right. think it would be, I think it would be dark and not particularly entertaining.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I agree. All right. Well, well, we're back to my three scenarios then. <laughs> okay. Thanks guys. This is fun. Um, Andy Rooney, I'm sorry to have impugned your memory. Um, You've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for being part of our lives these past uh, almost uh, well over a full presidential administration now. Um, You can always get in touch with us at uh, Channel3900 at at gmail.com. That's the podcast channel. If you want to ask us a question about the podcast itself, send it to us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the other uh, podcasts on the channel. Um, Avatar with academics, Bookish at Bethel, um, Tweet Victory, plenty. Uh, bu- um, the uh, b- uh, video store did Rashomon this week, and it was awesome. I love that movie. Uh, so uh, give us a give us a listen. Thanks for doing so. And on behalf of my colleagues, thanks for listening. Until we're back in your podcast feed again, go Royals.